Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Let's open God's Word now. Revelation 19. We'll begin in verse 11 this morning. Revelation chapter 19. Begin reading in verse 11. As I was studying this chapter and this section for the first time in preparation for preaching, it was at the local courthouse because I had been called into jury duty. And then I spent the week in jury duty and I wasn't able to preach. And Jeff so graciously, eagerly said, yeah, I'll jump in, I'll do that. And then the week after that was an Easter week, and I want to focus in on one of the two grand miracles of the faith, the resurrection of Christ. And so I've been sitting on this sermon for three weeks, which means it has become three sermons, and I'm only going to preach the first part of it. But this is a beautiful passage. It's a striking passage. It's a passage that we're perhaps familiar with, and, and I want to just kind of set your minds in, in what we're seeing, not just in this one little part of it, but in the larger context of where we are. If you're visiting with us, the way that we handle uh, the ministry of the Word here is we open a book and we start in verse 1, chapter 1, and then we work our way through the entire book one verse at a time. And so we've been studying this book for a year now. This is our 52nd sermon in this book. But here's what we've been learning As we've been seeing the vision of the revelation unfold, or I should say the visions of the revelation unfold, we see all these contrasts. We see the people of God versus the people of the earth. We see see heaven opened up and then we see what's taking place on earth. We see uh, the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, and we see the people of God, and we see the city of God, and then we see the enemies of God in contrast, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, and Babylon the Great, and the people of the earth. All of these contrasts exist. And a few weeks ago, I mentioned that one of the other contrasts that we see in this book is that this, the book is dominated by two cities. You've got the city of Babylon, the earthly Babylon that represents the godless humanity and its rejection of the truth and rejection of Christ. And then on the other hand, you have heavenly Jerusalem and the people that inhabit the heavenly Jerusalem. Those are two contrasts that we see. Well, in Revelation 19, we see another contrast. And it's a contrast between two meals. Two meals. A few weeks ago, we studied Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, and we looked at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, here in verses 11 through 21, we see a completely different kind of feast. Would you follow along as I read Revelation chapter 19, starting in verse 11? It says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron." 
He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. There's the second meal. Come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured. And with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? before we study it any further. Father God, I do thank you for your word. We thank you for your word. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through your word, that you have preserved your word for us to this day so that we can read its pages and understand what you want us to know. And Father, it's not lost on me that many who would maybe stand to declare your word might read this passage and then spend the next 30 minutes explaining it away. That is not my goal. My goal is to be a servant for you. My goal is to put your glory on display. My goal is to lift up the name of Jesus and to display all of these glorious attributes as hard as they may be for us to grasp so that we can, like Peter in the boat, so that we can see your glory and be rightly affected by it. The scriptures say that we can behold your glory, and as a result, we can be changed from one degree to another. So Lord, would you do that among us this morning? Would you give me strength and focus and clarity and power to speak your truth, and would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to receive? Accomplish your purpose, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our lives are highlighted by meals. Many of us, and I don't assume that everyone fell into this category, but many, many of us grew up eating meals around the family dinner table. For me, for my family, it was a nightly occurrence. It was a time to slow down. It was a time to catch up on the day. It was a time to give thanks to God for his provision. And, and really, it was just a time for us to spend together building our relationship as family. And my wife and I have worked really hard with our three children over the years to instill this simple, but I think powerful practice into the the culture of our family. And there are some meals we understand that, that are, you know, they're out of the norm. They're not the everyday regular meals that we have like every night. But they're the, the special occasion type meals, you know, holiday meals where you, you splurge a little bit and you bring out the china that you only eat on once a year, you know, that kind of thing. Birthday dinners are often very special. Church picnics are a lot of fun. You never know what you're going to get and you get to spend a lot of time with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's all kinds of different banquets and, and meals that are special meals and, and they're usually centered around some form of celebration. 
They center around something special having occurred. Something important has taken place. And the occasion turns a simple meal into an event. Well, the marriage supper of the Lamb, which we looked at a few weeks ago, is a special event. It's that, that day we long for, to be with the Lord, to be freed from the body, to be freed from the constraints of sin, to be in that period of rest, to be with God always. It's a, it's a meal that, according to Scripture, is going to be filled with happiness and celebration and blessing and rest. And it's a special meal because of who is present. The Lord is there, and we will be with Him. You know, it's not heaven if God's not there, right? It's God who makes heaven, heaven. And that marriage supper is something we long for. It's something we look forward to. But this meal here in verse 17, the great supper of God, well, it's a special occasion as well. And yes, Jesus will be there for that particular meal. But that meal is more of a nightmare than a celebration. This passage brings us into the final vision of the book of the Revelation. The book of the Revelation is made up of seven distinct visions, all of those visions showing us something of the church age uh, from different angles, really showing us the same story over and over again. This vision is the final one, starting here in verse 11 of chapter 19, and it begins with the triumphal return of heaven's king. And for Christians, this is the day we long for. This is the day we sing about. This is the day we hope for. But for unbelievers, this is a day of absolute terror. A day when unbelief turns into the fearful reality that they have placed their hope in the wrong thing. On that day, the Bible tells us that all will see the Lord revealed from heaven. We will see Him as the Savior of His people. And the rest of the world will see them as the terror because He is now their enemy. This is, a, this is a strange vision for us. Strange in the sense that this is not the dominant way in which we understand Jesus. It's not the dominant vision of Jesus in the New Testament. But rather than try to explain it away, I want to just allow it to stand on its own. So that we can see Christ revealed in His glory as He returns to judge the living and the dead. Now, I mentioned this is supposed to be one sermon, but it became three sermons, so this is going to be point number one, and there's a couple of sub-points to this. Essentially, today, all we're going to do is we're going to look at the king who has been revealed from heaven, this warrior king who has been revealed on this great white war horse. And as we study this, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the writer's description, and we're going to see the writer's purpose. So that's where we're going this morning. Go back, let your eyes go back to verse 11, and we'll, we'll see how this vision begins. John tells us, then I saw heaven opened, and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. Now there is no doubt who the writer is. There's no doubt about the identity of the one who is being revealed from heaven riding upon this great white war horse. This is Jesus. But this is not the way we are accustomed to seeing Jesus. The dominant vision of Jesus in the New Testament is of his humility. His humility. I'll, I'll try to draw your mind back to some things that point out his humility. He is the Son of God. He is the heir of heaven. And yet, he was born on earth in the humblest way imaginable. 
He stripped himself of the robes of his glory and he covered himself in the rags of our humanity. His earthly parents, for instance, they were not powerful, they were not wealthy, they were not well-known. They were completely insignificant when it came to world affairs, even Jewish affairs. They were just average, everyday, normal people. No one would suspect that the Son of Heaven would be born to parents like that. He was born in such a way that he didn't even have a place to lay his head. He wasn't born in a palace. He was born in a a manger, right? That's what we know. He was laid in a manger. That was his first bed, a feed trough for animals. Humility marked Jesus' first coming into the world and all of his earthly life. We learn from his conversations with people that he had no home of his own. He had no place to call home. He was a homeless individual. Even though he had people that cared for him and he had places to stay, he didn't have a home of his own. He possessed the power to move mountains, but he chose to keep that power hidden except to help others. He didn't use it to help himself. A few weeks ago, we studied the coronation of Christ. He he rode into his first crowning on a donkey, not a white war horse, not to the fanfare of important and powerful people, but to the songs of poor people. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Paul tells us in Philippians 2. You could summarize it this way. Jesus came to rescue the poor by becoming poor. He came to heal the broken and the lame and the blind and the outcast by being broken and cast out in our place. Jesus' earthly life and ministry was marked by this humility. That's the dominant vision of Jesus in the New Testament. But the picture we see here, it highlights different attributes of the Lord. Not a different God, not a different Jesus, but different attributes of God. It shows His glory. He's not coming in the humble way. He's going to return in a powerful display of His glory and His power. His might, His power is being displayed in this return. And we also see His justice and His fierce anger towards sin being displayed. It shows him in his exalted role as the just judge of all the earth. And it tells us that he has come to make war on his enemies and the enemies of his people. Now, I've just introduced that to you. But let's look more closely at all of these phrases, at all of these statements about the Lord and try to understand more clearly the description of Jesus that is being displayed here for us. First, we learn that this vision opens with Jesus riding out of heaven as a righteous warrior sitting upon a white war horse, which is one of the most iconic images that you can imagine of a, of a great leader of history riding on this wonderful charger, this valiant steed, this beautifully white and powerful and majestic animal. Now, the horse itself is symbolic. All of these images have a symbolic significance to them. The horse itself, it conveys power and grace and beauty. It it conveys significance. He's out front. He's the one leading the host of heaven. The armies of heaven are behind him in the train of his robe, and he is out here riding on this beautiful white war horse. And the color white conveys to us holiness and purity and victory. And all of these things are fitting of Jesus. He is the pure and spotless Lamb of God, the Holy Son of God, as well as the risen one who defeated death and has returned to earth as the victorious conqueror. 
If you have a picture in your mind of Jesus and you have a, a, a characteristic of Jesus that you feel like you have your arms around that you can put in a little box over here and you can control that, the scriptures are going to destroy your box. We can't contain him. We can't fully understand all that he is, but the scriptures reveal and display his majesty and glory to us if we have ears to hear and eyes to see. The second thing we find out is that he is called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful in that he fulfills everything that the scriptures reveal about him. He has fulfilled every promise of God, every prophecy about the Messiah, every longing that we have, and he fulfills every hope that believing humanity has in him. He is also true in that he is the personification of divine truth. He is the eternal word of God. Or you could take it from Jesus' own words. He is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. Think of all of the men that came before Jesus. Think about all their failures. Great men, no doubt. They're great men, and we remember their names, but they were all men. And men, at best, are sinful men. Think of all the men that have come before Jesus. Adam, he wasn't faithful like Jesus. Noah wasn't faithful like Jesus. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, an entire faith rests upon their shoulders in certain ways, but they were all flawed men. Perhaps the most dominant figure in the Old Testament would be David, the warrior king, right? The, the one who was a poet and the one who could wield the sword. And, and he is called a man after God's own heart, but we know the story of David. We know whether he had a heart for God or not, he was a flawed man filled with sin, and he, he didn't measure up to the stature and fullness of being called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true. He was faithful to the Father in every way. He learned obedience through what he suffered, and he remains faithful to the Father. He remains faithful to his people. He is true and trustworthy. His word will stand forever. Let Christ be true, though every man a liar, the scriptures would have us understand. Every word that comes from his mouth is true. Unlike, if we go back to that contrast idea, his words are all true, unlike Satan, who is the father of lies and has been lying since the very beginning. This is who we are seeing coming out of heaven in the end of days. Third, we, we learn that his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now that makes for a pretty stark image in our minds, right? If you, if you have a good imagination, you can imagine the white war horse and you can imagine the name being declared, but, but when you think about eyes being like a flame of fire, what is that trying to convey to us? Well, it's symbolic. It's a metaphor for his divine gaze. It shows us, it tells us, it reveals to us that he is able to see everything. And that's good because Jesus is humanity's judge who sees, according to Scripture, even the secret thoughts of men's hearts. Friend, you cannot lie to him. You cannot hide from him. You cannot escape from his burning sight. There is nothing that can be hidden from his gaze. He is no mere human judge with faults and limitations and, and boundaries placed around him. This is the Son of God, and he is coming to fulfill his role as the judge of all the earth, and he sees all things. Fourth, we learn that upon his head are many 
diadems, a multitude of diadems. Now, diadem is a word we don't use that often. Diadem means a crown. And the fact that he possesses many crowns indicates that he wears the crowns of all of the nations, all of the kingdoms of the earth. He now possesses all of their crowns. He is the sovereign one who rules over all, over every kingdom, over every people, over every tribe, over every nation and tongue. He has been crowned with authority over all, and his gospel has conquered in every one of those nations. His truth and his gospel have accomplished its purpose. His gospel now has free reign to the ends of the earth. And he is bringing into his family people from every tribe and tongue and nation and language. And that's being symbolized for us here in the fact that he wears a crown. He wears the rule over all of those nations. Think about the nations that the gospel has spread to since the the early days of Rome all the way until our own day. Today, more people are bowing the knee to Christ in South Asia and Africa and China than anywhere else on earth. You may not have known that. The balance of focus has shifted away from the West to these nations where the gospel is spreading like crazy. And the Bible is showing us in this day that he is wearing the crowns of all of these nations on the day of his return. Every nation on earth, he will rule over them all. Fifth, He bears a mysterious name that no one fully knows or comprehends but himself. Now, what does that mean? There's a lot of different ideas here. I mean, this is the revelation. There's a dozen ideas for every verse, but some say that he has a, a divine name that is secret to everyone. Only he knows it, and that's what this is saying, right? Okay, I can understand that being a possibility. Some say this is a reference to his divinity, which cannot be fully comprehended by mere creatures. And I I like that idea. Some will expand on that. Some say that this is a reference to the fact that he shares a name with the Father. You may remember that um, when God revealed himself to Moses, he, he told him, I am. That's my name. That's who I am. I am the existent one. I am the one who exists alone, apart from any uh, substance, apart from any support. I am. And then in Jesus' own life and ministry, especially in the Gospel of John, he uses those I am statements seven different times. And he's identifying with the, the God that is I am. And some people would say that that's what this is referring to. The fact that Jesus and the Father are one. And still others... And, and I'm, you can hold to any one of these opinions, and that's okay. I want you to know that. But still others understand that this reference simply shows us that Jesus Christ cannot be fully known by mere creatures. And let me, let me expand on that a little bit, because this is kind of where I land. Joel Beakey writes, Maybe, He may be Jesus of Nazareth, but he is also the unfathomable God. We cannot know everything there is to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. He is too great. He is too glorious for that. As much as we know about him, there is still more that we don't know. In that sense, no one knows his name but he himself. And let me say a few other things about this. Throughout the New Testament, we see a multitude of names given to Jesus. And I'm just going to give you a handful of them. There are, are more. Throughout the New Testament, we hear him referred to as the Son of Man, the Son of God, 
the Messiah, Rabbi, Lord, Lamb of God, the suffering servant, God's only begotten Son, the Good Shepherd, the light of the world, the resurrection and the life, the bread of life, the gate, the way, the truth, and the life, and the true vine. He is Emmanuel. He is the firstborn from the dead. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the image of the invisible God. He is our savior, our mediator. He is the friend of sinners, and he is the first and the last. He has revealed the Godhead to us in a way more clearly than anything else, than anyone else, in such a profound and imaginable way. But still, he is beyond our comprehension. Theologians may assume that we have the measure of Christ. Philosophers may claim to understand him fully, but no mere mortal can truly plumb the depths of the knowledge of Jesus. I think that's what the the Apostle Paul was overwhelmed by in Romans 11 when he said this, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. When Paul gets to the end of the the greatest book in the New Testament, or at least to that portion of it, he just gets overwhelmed and he says, as much as I know, there's still so much more I don't comprehend. Jesus remains a mystery. But I'll give you one verse in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. And you can just jot it down. You don't have to turn there. It tells us that in the ages to come, he is going to reveal more and more of his grace and kindness to us. And I don't know what that means fully. In the ages to come. There are going to be ages to come. This is talking about the eternal state. This is talking about the heavenly existence. When we are with the Lord, and in those ages, we're not going to be just playing on harps, you know, on clouds and stuff. We're we're going to be learning and growing and experiencing an earth, a life that is more rich and more full and more real than this one. And in Ephesians 2, we learn that he is going to teach us more and more and more about himself. It's going to take ages to fully comprehend who he is. That's the fifth description of the rider on the white horse. The sixth description comes in verse 13. And I am going to bounce around a little bit. Uh, It says that he wears a blood-drenched robe. And this image comes to us from Isaiah 63. Some of you know this, some of you may not. This is an Old Testament image. Much of what we see in the Revelation is the the Apostle John taking those images from the Old Testament and bringing them forward and, and giving them a new context for us, or at least a new application for us. And in Isaiah 63, what we see is the Lord arriving as a mighty warrior. He comes in the greatness of his strength, and his garments have become stained with the blood of his fallen enemies. And that's where we see the idea of the grapes of wrath. That's where we see the idea of God treading the winepress of his wrath, only the press is filled with his enemies, not with grapes. And the enemies represent unbelievers from every nation. This is a dramatic and visual, stunningly visual picture of the judgment of God. His stained garments are symbolic of God's divine justice. Like Cody mentioned earlier, the more we know of Christ and the closer we get to Christ, understanding His grace that has drawn us in, we we cannot allow 
that familiarity to dull the sharpness of his holiness or to blunt the point of his justice. Far too often that happens. And we want to we carve Jesus down into a being that we can understand and control and identify with. And as much as we can in his earthly ministry, he is beyond our comprehension. And he is the Holy One of Israel who has been appointed by the Father not only to lay down his life for his friends, but to be the divine warrior who comes in vengeance to judge all of the earth. We often comfort our hearts with thoughts of Jesus as gentle servant, meek and mild, right? And he is never less than this, but he is so much more than this. His eyes are a flame of fire. He wears the crowns of nations conquered by his gospel, and there is a sharp sword that proceeds from his mouth. And in this vision, he is coming to earth, and we are told that he is coming to judge and to make war. He's not stumbling into this. He is coming for that purpose. Paul tells us in Romans 11, not just what I mentioned earlier, but he says that we should note the kindness of God, but we should also remember his severity. Meek and mild, yes, absolutely. But don't forget that he is also a consuming fire. Seventh, he is called the Word of God, and that comes to us in verse 13. And this is a title that we've seen before. In the prologue to John's Gospel, Jesus is introduced to us as the Word, the Logos, right? We've studied that before. You've probably heard that before. If you haven't, here's what John, John's Gospel, the same John who wrote the Revelation, John's Gospel begins with this phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was fully God. And then in verse 14 it says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus bears that title of the Word of God, the divine revelation of God clothed in flesh to dwell among us. You could think about it this way. He is the visible and living testimony of God to man. Number eight, he is the commander of the armies of heaven. Look at verse 14. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Heaven's army ride upon white horses, just like their commander. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of this picture. Generally, I think most of us think about the army of heaven in terms of the host of heaven, the heavenly host. And we think of the heavenly host as being made up of angels only. Angels are created beings, uh, but they are still angels, right? And that's what we generally think of here. But this vision expands on this idea, and I don't believe it's just going to be angels with Jesus, Here we see an army that's arrayed in white linen, riding upon horses. This doesn't appear to me to be a vision of angels only, but of saints as well. The angels that we see in the Revelation are clothed in linen, and it's called shining and clean, right? But the saints of God are also clothed in fine white linen. So the fact that they're, they're robed in linen doesn't really tell us who they are. Are they saints or are they angels? Both of them could be a category. But here's one of the things that kind of gets it for me. I am not aware of any angel having a need to ride a horse. Obviously you don't either. Whether it's symbolic or no, and because of this and some other things, I believe that this vision symbolizes that both angels and glorified saints accompany Christ when he returns at the end of days. And he will lead the host into battle. And you might ask, but how is that possible? Well, I'm going to do a really quick theology of this. The Bible tells us that when 
To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The body goes into the ground as we know. We've stood at gravesides far too many times, and we will before our time comes. And the body goes into the ground, but the scriptures tell us that the soul, the eternal soul, lives on. And because of Christ, because of his resurrection, we understand that there is no longer this place of waiting. This shield no longer applies to the believer. Our souls are ushered into the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And upon the resurrection, here's what we know or what we we hear and read about in scripture. That when Christ returns, he, he will lead a host with him. And our souls are among that host. And then our bodies will be raised from the dead. And we will meet the Lord in the air. Here's where it says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, I'm taking that passage, and I'm taking the Revelation 19 passage, and I'm putting them together saying that there are going to be saints in the train of his robe, newly glorified bodies, glorified saints returning with the Lord. The army of heaven is going to take its place behind Christ as he returns in victory, and that host, that army, will be made up of both angels and saints. But I don't expect that we're going to do any fighting, or much fighting, because Jesus wields a weapon that has no equal. Number nine, his weapon will be the sword that comes from his mouth. And we even read a little further that he will destroy his enemies simply by the sword of his mouth. What is that all about? The The word that he has spoken is represented here, and it's the sharpest and most deadly weapon in his arsenal. Now, I do not believe that this is literal. We've seen this vision already all the way back in chapter 1. I don't believe this is literal. I don't believe that we are to understand that in Jesus' glorified body, his tongue has been replaced with a sword. This is symbolic. And the symbolism is telling us the point is to show that the word of Christ, the word that comes from his mouth, is the most powerful weapon in the universe. I could give you dozens of scriptures here. I'll give you just one. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The point of that vision is to say when Jesus returns, he is coming and he's going to wield the weapon of his word. We will be judged. We will be measured by the word of God. And understand this. We're really good at doing this just in life. We, we, We tend to think of ourselves as being okay or doing well or we're good because we measure ourselves based on other people, right? We look at other people and we're like, well, I'm not in jail for murder, or I'm not that person, or I'm not over there. And you know what? If you do that, if you measure your idea of your own goodness based on other people, then there are going to be plenty of people that you stack up to, and you look better off. I've made this joke before. If we put two you know, five-year-old kids in a boxing ring together, they would be pretty evenly matched, wouldn't they? But if we got the best fighter in the world to step in the ring with that five-year-old, the the, the match is over. 
You compare yourself to other people, you might stack up and you might feel good about yourself, but when God steps into the ring, the the contest is over. He is the one who measures us by His Word. We stack up based upon His Word. Don't measure yourself compared to other people. Measure yourself according to the Word of God because that's what you're going to be measured by in the end. All of humanity is going to be held account by the Word of God. Our sentence of pardon or guilt will be measured and determined by the Word of God. The Word of God... It will never go away. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will remain forever. And then tenth, finally, the last description is we see Jesus here declared to be king over kings or king of kings and Lord over all lords. And this title appears on his robe and on his thigh, which highlights again the symbolic nature of this vision. Do I believe Jesus has a tattoo on his leg? No, that's not the point. The robe is the symbol of royalty and majesty, and the thigh is a symbol of power and strength. This title symbolizes Jesus' royal strength, and with his royal power, he comes to rule over all. That's the picture. Every ruler, every nation, every people group, every creature under heaven is subject to his authority. They belong to him. He is the agent of creation that has brought us all into existence and he upholds us by the word of his power, Colossians 1 tells us. And he rules over us as the rightful king and judge of all the earth. Today, we know that Jesus rules over his kingdom. We'll just shorthand tell you, that's the church. He rules over the church and he rules over us as savior, redeemer, lord, and king. But when this final day comes... He will take up his rule over all. And we are told that every knee will bow. In heaven or on earth or under the earth, every knee will bow and give praise to the Lord. This vision of Christ riding up to earth from heaven upon this great white war horse is one of the most awesome images in all of Scripture. It shows him in a light that we don't often see. It shows him revealed in his holiness. It shows him in his zeal for righteousness. It shows his fierce vengeance, which Paul tells us in Romans, we are to wait upon the vengeance of the Lord. It shows his uncontrollable power. And when I say that, I don't mean that he is out of control. I just mean that we have no conceivable ability to control him. I can't help but think of uh, Lucy Pevensey when she learned that Aslan was not a man in the Narnia story. You probably remember that. She, she, the whole time, she's learning about this great king, and she thinks, oh, well, this has got to be a man. And then she finds out, wait a minute, it's not a man, it's a lion? Well, what am I supposed to do with a lion? I'm, I'm not okay with meeting a lion. Is he safe? And then you remember what Mr. Beaver said. Well, yeah, he's a lion, but he's not safe. He's the king. He's good, but no. No, he's not safe. The Son of Man possesses the power that is beyond the comprehension of any of us. His mere whisper in Revelation 1 is compared to the roar of the sea. To be in His presence is to know our weakness and our impurity and our finiteness. He is not safe, but He is good. And He is King over all kings. Now that is simply my attempt of explaining the description of the rider on the white horse. We have one more thing to look at this morning and I'll try to make it brief. What is his purpose? 
We see the writer's description. Now let's look at his purpose. First, on this day, Jesus will come, according to verse 11, to judge the world in righteousness. Jesus has been appointed by the Father as the one who is the rightful judge over all of humanity. In John chapter 5 and verse 22, we read this, For the Father judges no one. This is Jesus. The Father judges no one. He has given all judgment to the Son, and He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus is the divine Savior sent into the world to rescue us from our sin, and he is also the divinely appointed judge who will judge even the secret thoughts of men with perfect justice. And because we know this, because we know that he is both at the same time, we know that he is not an, a cold and uncaring judge. We know that he is filled with love and mercy and compassion. We know that he is motivated by righteousness and justice and fairness. But we also know that he shows no partiality. He hates evil. He loves what is good. And he will execute judgment in the perfection of holiness. And that's the kind of judge we want. That's the kind of judge we need. If he is not going to be bound to his own standard of fairness and he was just an evil monster, we would have no understanding of how we might please this judge. And yet we have come to understand in our knowledge of the gospel that it's not up to us to please the judge. He has made satisfaction for his people. I've used the phrase gospel a couple of times. We, we refer to the gospel all the time because the gospel is the central message of our Christian faith. And, and in our culture, over the years, the, the idea of the gospel has been convoluted and confused. In other words, the gospel is not, if you're a good person, God will love you. The Bible tells us that there, there are no good people. We're all sinners. We're all outside the ability to save ourselves. The gospel is not, if you do good things, God will love you. The gospel is... That God has shown his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. And on the cross, he paid the penalty for the sins of his people. So that we can be cleansed of sin and we can come into the presence of God, not on our merits, but on the merits of Jesus. And, And because he is the just judge and he's already poured out the wrath that our sin deserves, there's no more wrath to pour out for the believer. And we come before the Lord and we remember his righteousness and we remember his holiness and we confess our sins and we repent of our sins and we keep following him and we keep trusting in him. But on this day, the wrath of God is not falling upon the Christian. It's falling upon everyone who said, no, I'll do it myself. It falls upon everyone who shakes their fist at God and says, no, I'm going to be my own master, Lord, Savior, and King. And I'll reject your love and grace. Friends, that might be a hard message for you to hear, but that's the gospel of Scripture consistently taught. And it's in the framework of that that we have to understand Jesus coming to judge. And he will execute judgment perfectly. And that means that for those who are believers, we need not fear the wrath of God. It's already been poured out. But for the unbeliever, you must fear the wrath of God. Second, it says that on that day, he will make war 
upon his enemies. Every injustice, every act of oppression, every heinous crime, every wicked act of violence, all of the nonsense that we see on the news, everything that's happening around the world, every violation of human dignity and freedom and nature will be perfectly charged to the guilty and their sentence will be carried out in full. When Christ carries out the final judgment upon the world, we can be certain that all will be held accountable for their deeds and true justice will be poured out. It will be carried out, divinely so. Third, it says that he will strike down the nations and then rule them with iron, with a rod of iron. Jesus is not the type of king who leads from the rear. He leads out front. He will take the fight to his enemies and those who persecute his people, and that's another one of the themes that we see throughout the Revelation, that the people of God cry out in pers- because of their the persecution that they experience, that we experience in this world. And when that day comes, those who persecuted his people, they will face him. He will battle the spiritual forces of darkness face to face and he will strike them down and then rule them with a rod of iron. We'll learn a little bit more about that next week. And then fourth, it says he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. I don't know that there's a more fearsome verse in all of scripture than that. Now, we've already considered this phrase a little bit and, and talked about how it's, a, it's reflected of uh, Isaiah chapter 63, but it bears repeating. The Lord Jesus, when he comes in judgment, will defeat his enemies as easily as a grown man crushes grapes beneath his feet. No man will stand before him. No power in heaven or earth can hope to avoid his gaze or his justice. That's the picture we see here. Total domination on the part of the Lord. Let me, let me summarize this. The Bible promises us that one day Jesus will return. We will see him. And when he comes, the Jesus of our imagination will disappear. The Jesus that we create in our own minds, the toned down Jesus, the easy to use Jesus, the safe for all ages Jesus, the one that we put on t-shirts and bumper stickers and, and coffee mugs, that Jesus is going to be gone. Because all of the things that we imagine are going to be replaced by the reality. And we're seeing something of a picture of the reality here. All of those will pale in comparison to the fearsome reality of Christ. But the cross of Christ, that's what we need to gaze upon today. That's the constant reminder that though He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and though He is coming in a terrifyingly holy and just way, He is still the Savior who laid down His life for those He calls His friends. And He tells us in the Word that today is the day of salvation. And that day has not come. That day of His judgment has not come because He is... He is slow to anger, not desiring that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You're here today hearing this message, and you might think, well, that's, that's a terrible picture of Christ. It's a true picture of Christ. And today is the day of salvation. For those who have put their hope and trust in the Lord, turned from their sin and, and are hoping in Him alone, we're, we're called family. We no longer fear this day. We've been bought with a price. Jesus is our great high priest. He, he loves us and he has given his life to make us his own and we need not fear him. But for those who have rejected Christ to this point, there is coming a day when you will face him when he returns 
And while this vision is a great comfort to those who believe, it is a warning to those who do not. So friend, do not harden your heart today. Today is the day of salvation. Lay down your rebellion. Lay down your sin. Come to Jesus, I like to use this phrase, with the empty hands of faith. Don't come to him with all of these trophies to say why he should love you and accept you. Just come with empty hands and say, I'm a sinner and I need your grace and forgiveness. That's the starting point. Let me pray for you now, all of us. Father God, I thank you for your word and I thank you for this passage. I pray that you would give us hearts and minds to see, comprehend, and understand and that you would give us the ability. I I know there haven't been a bunch of application points here. The application point is to behold the Lord Jesus Christ and to be changed by that reality. So would you do that? Would you change us? Would you comfort us? Would you give us greater hope and confidence? But would you also motivate us in our evangelism? Because we know this day is coming and there's but one hope for humanity. And and would you motivate us in our holiness? Would you motivate us in our pursuit of a deeper and closer relationship with you? Would you motivate us to be like Peter who fell down on his knees because he understood his sin and he understood the glory of the one in front of him? Would you help us to be motivated in those ways? But Lord, for those who are among us who do not know you, who are strangers to your covenants and promises, Lord, I pray that today would be the day that you would open their hearts to see and believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. So would you accomplish that purpose, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.